0: welcome to the latest episode of Schneps connects today i have Sanford rubinstein who is one of new york's most sought-after advocates for victims rights in personal injury medical malpractice and civil rights matters he's been described by new york post page six as a high-powered personal injury lawyer and named one of new york state's most influential lawyers rubinstein has handled numerous multi-million dollar high-profile cases In which he has represented victims in tragic occurrences in New York City, including police brutality, inmate neglect, and medical malpractice. He has appeared as a legal analyst on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. Sanford has been recognized for his work in social justice by civil rights organizations, including, among others, the NAACP, Black Lives Matter Greater New York, Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network, the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding, and the Black Institute. He's the author of a book entitled The Outrageous Rubenstein, in which he writes about his experience as a media-savvy trial lawyer, fighting for justice and change, representing countless victims of wrongful acts. And if you don't know him, I'm sure you've seen him, and now you get to hear him. Sanford, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, you've become a friend over the years, us crossing paths in a lot of different ways, and... And certainly you're out there representing a lot of people and getting out there when there are big things happening around New York City. But I'd love to start off with you just maybe sharing your background and what led you to become a civil rights lawyer and activist.
1: Well, life is full of surprises. And I had a storefront in Bedford-Stuyvesant back almost 50 years ago in which I represented victims in all sorts of different cases. It turns out a lot of Haitians were coming to America at that time and settling in Brooklyn, and they became my clients. Mm-hmm. And I represented in a typical uh, hit-in-the-rear case uh, the cousin of Admiral mm-hmm. When the horrible—and I'll tell your you uh, listeners about the case of Admiral because we forget that it's almost 25 years ago that it happened. A man is taken to a, uh, a police precinct house in Brooklyn, taken in the bathroom, and sodomized by a police officer. Mm -hmm. horrible, horrible injuries requiring numerous surgeries or long hospitalizations. That police officer who did that, Jostin Volpe, is still in jail, got sentenced to 30 years and will remain in prison for those full 30 years, justifiably put there because of what he did to set an example to other police officers that if you do something as horrific as that, you will be killed. We held accountable. Mm. In addition, we got him a substantial award, a multi-million dollar award, but that's not what's really important in this case. What's important is this police officer went to jail for a very long time.
0: Yeah, that was a huge high profile case. I mean, I remember, you know, being all over the news, obviously it was a horrific act, uh, thing, but, you know, the media really picked up on that across every platform there was back then.
1: And it was interesting because The defense initially in the media, in the trial before the trial, in the court of public opinion, they were trying to say, well, this all happened when he had a homosexual love affair, and uh, that's how he got injured. Totally nonsense, totally untrue, totally uh, made up. But that was well counted in the media, because I put his wife on TV and she said, what? We've been married for 20 years. He's with me. This never could have happened that way. And of course, ultimately, when the federal government got involved, the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuted, their investigators, the FBI, hundreds of FBI agents, they got to the truth. And the truth was it happened the way Adnan said it happened. He was tortured in a police precinct house.
0: Was that your first real major encounter with uh, the media?
1: That was the first case that made me famous. I had uh, been uh, a number of high-profile media cases prior to that, but nothing as horrific as this, and nothing that got the international coverage that that this case did.
0: You know, you talk about the the court of public opinion. W- what did you learn from that experience, just from a personal perspective, um, aside from the case? Like, what did you learn in terms of that court of public opinion, or you know, how the media can impact the case look i can't tell you
1: why but all i know is this once the media gets a hold of a case it's publicized the value of that case in terms of a jury verdict or in terms of settlement numbers is increased interesting so what i do is and and the book that i wrote which is subtitled how a media savvy trial lawyer fights for justice and change is it's called the outrageous rubenstein is A way I showed through many cases how media involvement in a case uh, is very important. And remember, ultimately, a jury is going to decide damages in a case. And if a jury has seen a case in the media and it just is that way, I'm not saying it should be. It just turns out uh, the case, the damages are multiplied.
0: Let's talk about a more current case. You have this $25 million lawsuit against uh, the police in the city representing the family of a woman that was gunned down last year, I guess, was someone that potentially was on the New York uh, Police Department in, in what was, I guess a love triangle killing. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Sure. This was a horrible tragedy. Actually, there's two25 million dollar claims because I represent not only the estate of the woman killed by this police officer in cold blood, shot to death, but also her former girlfriend, who she shot as well. Simply put, what happened here was. A police officer, a woman, goes to the home of an ex-girlfriend and shoots and kills her new lover and shoots the ex-girlfriend. The real question in that case is why did the NYPD allow her to keep her gun? The supervisors at her precinct knew that she was emotionally distressed by the breakup with the ex-girlfriend because she was getting time off for recovering from this terrible emotional blow, this breakup. Why did they let her keep her gun? That's Mm -hmm. the basis for two $25 million claims against the NYPD and the city of New York. If the police department knows that a police officer is emotionally upset, emotionally distressed, they should take her gun away, his gun or her gun away.
0: Share with me some of the other big cases that you've represented. Well.
1: In medical malpractice, and and people don't know that I do medical malpractice, a lot of it as well. uh, I tried a case with my malpractice team and got a $62 million verdict for a woman who went to a a hospital just for a simple elective procedure and couldn't even walk out of the hospital because both of her legs were amputated and she lost her ability to speak properly uh, because of an infection she got. And she did not get the care that's required As someone who had that infection, so it spread and resulted in a double amputation of both legs and an inability to speak as well as she had spoken before. She's a courageous woman because she's carried on her life now as best she can. But the jury came back with a verdict of $62 million.
0: What would you say, you know, looking back on your career, and obviously you're still very active now, but what, what are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the fact that I'm just, just a lawyer. I'm also an activist. I'm out there in the streets
1: marching with demonstrations to, to try to get the change that we need so what happened to one victim doesn't happen to another one. And I encourage young lawyers to be activists as well, to try to get change, whether it's in the legislature or by the governor's executive orders or by the federal government in Congress, try to get change so what happens to one victim doesn't happen to another. And that's something that most victims feel very strongly about. They don't want to see other families suffer the way they have if they've lost a loved one. And other victims who sustain horrible injuries don't want those injuries uh, to happen to others as well.
0: Listen, I got to ask you a personal question because it's one of the things I really love about you. I I mean it. How do you keep up your energy?
1: I'll tell you something. It keeps me alive. I go to the gym every day. (laughs) I do an hour, either weights or treadmill. And I eat, right? I mean, it's just something that you do. I'm a uh, a pescatarian. I only eat fish. Uh, and I think I have to thank my mother and father because I got great genes.
0: <laughs> Where did you grow up?
1: Well, actually, my, my background is very interesting. I grew up in it. Initially, I was born. My parents lived in a tenement in Brooklyn in uh, East New York. Mm. They then moved up from the tenement to the housing projects, Ravenswood, in Long Island City, Queens. Sure. And then when I was 14, they decided a better life for their family, myself and my sister. And they bought a little house in Rockland County in Muncie, which is now a, a center for uh, Jewish learning. Yes. But was sort of rural turning suburbia. And I went to Spring Valley High School, Rockland Community, local community college. I'm a community college guy. Then mm-hmm. went away to uh, Oswego, finished my BA, did an MBA in business at uh, Baruch, did some work in the PhD program in business. And then I decided I always wanted to be a lawyer. It says lawyer in my high school yearbook. Yeah, I wanna be a lawyer. So I went to Brooklyn Law School at night, taught public school in Harlem Mm -hmm. under a program that gave young people who taught school, draft of young men, draft affirmation. That was the Vietnam era. So I was a school teacher during the day. I called up my board of education fellowship to law school and went to law school at night. Many others like me uh, were in my class.
0: Well, listen. I think anyone that knows you has a lot of respect for your uh, your energy and your passion. Talk about. Thank let's you. talk about another big issue in New York City, and it was a big issue over the last several mayoral elections, really, which is stop and frisk. What's your perspective on it? Well, I I happen to have it. Your viewers can't see it,
1: but I had it in front of me uh, to refer to a demonstration that I led with Reverend Sharpton union leaders, uh, other civil rights leaders, Mark Morial from the Urban League, and stop and frisk, stop racial profiling. During the Bloomberg administration, the police department had been given orders to stop and frisk any young man who was, they thought maybe, could have had a gun of some sort. So I thought I might have lost you for a second. I didn't lose you, did I? No. Okay. Uh, So they would stop without any probable cause, without any justification. A federal judge later said, unconstitutionally, young, mostly black men, push him against the wall, search him. And the young men would say, I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you stopping me? They'd end up getting arrested for nonsense charges. They'd uh, charge them with interfering with governmental administration, resisting arrest, sometimes even assaulting a police officer, which is serious. But they weren't doing anything wrong. That was a serious issue in the mayor election in which de Blasio got elected because de Blasio was the only candidate who said, if I'm elected mayor, I would stop, stop and frisk. In fact, Thompson, who was the runner up in that race, probably would have won if he had come out and said the same thing, but he didn't. So we had a mayor who got elected to end stop and frisk. This mayor ended stop and frisk as he promised he would. And I believe as a result, many young black men's lives were not ruined. So, so badly, as those who were approached, shoved against the wall, ended up with criminal records, ended up with charges, ended up having to hire criminal lawyers, but it ruined their lives when they were when applying for a job, when they want to go mm. to school. It was terrible. Now, what's happened is this because of the, the, the crime wave in New York City and the problem with guns, and guns are a very serious problem. I'll talk in a moment about a case I'm doing now in which a young 19 year old girl was gunned down at a Burger King. She worked there. Uh, by a robber. There's a a real serious issue in this city with guns, and and, and government has to do something to stop guns. So Eric Adams, uh, who was a former police captain, uh, who I respect and and admire, he came out and said, well, if I get elected, I'm going to bring Stop and Frisk back. Well, he's not bringing Stop and Frisk back in that form. He's going to bring back something like it. And he claims that He's gonna be very cautious about the police officers he puts in this bureau, and it's not gonna be like the old slap and frisk, which he opposed as as a police officer and and knew the the evils of. Mm. Let's see if that happens. But right before he got elected, I joined a number of activists and protested in front of his office that if he got elected, don't start stop and frisk again. And I think it's really important if he does start a new uh, police bureau, a new police uh, uh, effort, and he should to stop guns, uh, some kind of anti-gun patrol that they don't do what the stop and frisk police officers did where they literally uh, ruined young men's lives. So Mm -hmm. it's an issue now. It's an issue now how uh, his special police force, which is going to, you know, special uh, force from the police force, which is going to try to stop stop the guns from coming in uh, will, will operate, but they can't do the unconstitutional stops Without probable cause, without justification, uh, that was done by police during the stop and frisk era.
0: You know, I can't ignore the fact that you're advertising with our own AM New York um, to people that have been impacted by that horrific fire in the Bronx this past week. So, you know, one of the worst. Talk a little bit tra- about
1: that. one of the worst, and I hope it works because I put a full page ad in AM New York, and I'm happy to have that opportunity. One of the Worst fires ever in the history of this city, 44 people injured, 17 people, many of them children, dead because the smoke from a uh, a fire which started an apartment ended up going through the building because there was something defective at the about the door, which is supposed to close automatically when it shut. This door didn't. And uh, the fire started with apparently a space heater that uh, I've handled other fire cases before. Some of the injuries of victims of fires are horrendous. And people live not only with the physical scars, but the mental scars as well. Uh, And and in this case, uh, a lot of the deaths were from smoke inhalation. Horrible tragedy. I'm hoping to represent victims. I've been speaking with victims in this tragedy, and I'll be happy to represent uh, those families whose victims died as well as uh, individuals who suffered as a result of uh, smoke inhalation uh, in this fire, but a horrible, horrible tragedy. And perhaps we need change here in terms of statutes that will require more to be done. So we don't have a situation in in which there's a a violation of a uh, city code, which requires doors to be self-closing, which this door wasn't. And perhaps we need more oversight by by the city department of buildings uh, when it comes to this issue. And I see in this case, not only is the building owner gonna be a target defendant, but also the city of New York. The problem is when a tragedy happens, not only to get damages for victims, but as I said earlier, also to get change so what happens to one victim doesn't happen to another. And of course, I fight to get the maximum damages for every, represent, every victim I represent, and that's what I'm supposed to do.
0: Yeah, it's such a scary thing that it could happen in this day and age for so many people to, uh, to be horribly impacted by a fire in a building. Let's talk about um, your recent award. You got the Lifetime Achievement Award by the New York Law Journal, is that correct?
1: Yes, I I was extremely honored to uh, get a call from the Law Journal. And for those who don't know, the New York Law Journal is the eminent, preeminent uh, publication for lawyers that everyone reads every day. And they select lawyers like myself, and they give those of us who are into their career in a number of years, and I've been a lawyer almost 50 years now, hard to believe, awards. And this is the Lifetime Achievement Award they gave me. What was interesting is it was presented uh, at an event. And at the event were all these big time corporate lawyers who uh, received lifetime, uh, uh, who received other awards uh, from the New York Law Journal. And I was asked to speak. And, and in the audience was Loretta Lynch, who formerly was the attorney general, whose colleague was getting one of their awards. Uh, and I knew Loretta Lynch, she was the prosecutor in the Louieman case. But it, it, was, it was those who achieved great success in the corporate world. And here I am, a guy who saw it in the storefront. So, I, you know, you think in those situations, what are you going to tell him? What are you going to say? Well, I told him some lessons of, of life. And one is, uh, and, you know, as, as a civil rights lawyer, I spent a lot of time in Baptist churches. And as a young Jewish boy from Brooklyn, uh, I found it very educational. And one of the things the, the Baptist ministers uh, preach, and they, they roar back in their pew, and they say, if I come off this pew and knock you down, that's on me. Two weeks later, you ain't up, that's on you. Well, that's a lesson of life, that if you get knocked down, get up. And I was uh, telling them that they should help their clients get up when when terrible things happen. But I found it rather moving that here I am, a kid who started in a community college, uh, speaking about lessons of life to all of these uh, Ivy League (laughs) corporate lawyer types. Uh, But I was very honored that the Law Journal picked me. Uh, to award my work as a lawyer throughout my lifetime uh, with their Lifetime Achievement Awards, a- as, as much as I uh, always, every time I receive an award from a civil rights organization, because I never dreamed as a young kid I'd become a well-known civil rights lawyer, which is what I consider myself, fighting yeah. for, for, for those without a voice, uh, the voice of the voiceless, I've been called. Uh, I never thought I'd become a, a well-known civil rights lawyer, and I'm so proud of that, Uh, The first person to ever call me a civil rights lawyer was Reverend Al Sharpton, who I spent almost 20 years uh, working with. And now I represent uh, the head of Black Lives Matter, Hawk Greater New York, Hawk Newsom, other uh, important activists in New York, Reverend Kevin McCall. uh, And and I stand with them in the streets, march with them in the streets with regarding issues that affect the people of our city, state and country. And I'm very proud of that as well. So I, I, I employ young lawyers, Don't just be a lawyer and go to court, be an activist, stand up for your clients. And if you have to march in the
0: streets. Well, let me tell you something that you got on every law school graduate, more energy than those 26 year olds, (laughs) that's for sure. And I respect that. And I always enjoy talking to you Sanford. And I really appreciate your uh, time on Schnepp's Connects and, and getting to hear your story and share your story. We're finished
1: with a half hour, that went pretty fast.
0: Listen, me and you, whenever we chat, time goes fast. You're fun to talk to.
1: Well, let me close by saying I invite you to breakfast again at the Regency. We always enjoy that. Just let me know when you're free. Yes.
0: You got it. Thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.